0: Nathan said, I bring you greetings from the great white north, which is really the Midwest. But I checked last night and with windchill, it was minus 10. So I have quite a surprise waiting for me when I return today. Um, I've enjoyed the uh, warmer weather minus today and yesterday here this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 22, is where we'll be this morning You guys have been in Matthew for quite some time and we're just plodding along, continuing to work our way through the book of Matthew. With me here, starting in verse 22 of Matthew chapter 12. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be? the son of David. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. About two months ago, Blake texted me and asked me if I was going to be around today, um, and if I wanted to preach, this is what he said, and I quote, you in town, one, two, question mark, if so, would you want to preach? The text would be Matthew 12, 22 through 32, pretty thorny, but we got to keep plodding through it. I was driving at the time, so where I got wherever it was I was going, I pulled up the text, <laughs> read it, and I sent him three uh, laughing, crying face emojis, if you're familiar with those. Um, so here we are, the first sermon of the year a guest preacher, and we've got to tackle Jesus being called demonic, the ongoing defeat of Satan in the unforgivable sin in like 30 to 35 minutes. Um, conveniently, Blake texted me a couple weeks ago, he's like, hey, I don't know if I told you this, but I'm not going to be there. So I don't know if that's a vote of confidence or something to be concerned about. I guess we'll find out if uh, someone drags me off the stage, we'll know. But all joking aside, our text this morning is a weighty one. It has a serious and sober tone because it deals with significant matters of the heart and unbelief. We're going to work through the text together and just tackle each issue as it prevents itself. Before we dive in, let's pray and ask the Lord for his help and blessing this morning. Father, your word is sure and solid ground upon which we build. We thank you that it is clear, that it's inspired, that it's trustworthy, that it's accurate, that it's sufficient. Lord, we recognize that without your help this morning that we will not leave your chains. So we ask by the power of your spirit that you would work in us. And we thank you that you are faithful to work in us when your word is heeded and listened to. So God, help us to heed it this morning. God, we don't want to be just hearers of your word. We want to be doers and lovers of it as well. So help us, we ask. It's in Christ's name and for his glory we pray. Amen. So this morning, we'll see three realities of the kingdom in our text. These three realities are connected by the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus that we'll see in verse 24. The first reality of the kingdom is found in verses 22 through 24. The first reality of the kingdom is this. Some will reject the kingdom. Reality number one, some will reject the kingdom. Our text this morning continues in the portion of Matthew where Jesus is working many miracles and then we see this ongoing opposition posed to him by the religious leaders of the day. And our story begins with a man who is oppressed by a demon and because of that oppression, he cannot speak and he cannot see. This man is brought to Jesus, Jesus heals him and for whatever reason, this this healing, this exorcism is so miraculous that the crowd begins to ask the question, is this the son of David? Is this the Messiah? And the word used here in Matthew for the crowd's response is a more emphatic word. It's the only time it's used in Matthew. So for whatever reason, the crowd's response to Jesus' miracle, him casting out this demon, is, is different. And they ask this question. And though they're curious about his identity, this isn't discipleship. This is, they still have a level of hesitancy. They're trying to figure it out, but they are asking the question. And the Pharisees, faced with this same evidence as the crowd, quickly try to stifle the crowd's question about Jesus by insisting that he cast out demons not by supernatural power from the spirit, but by the power of Satan. This is not the first time the religious leaders have accused Jesus of being demonic. You guys have seen it in Matthew 9, 34, and 10:25. They've called him a demon. They've said he's been possessed. They've called him demonic. This is not the first time that they have opposed him in this way and accused him of this. And the Pharisees' hostility towards Jesus and his ministry here demonstrate their hard-heartedness and unbelief. Of all the people in the first century, very few were more prepared to recognize the Messiah than the religious leaders of the day. They had the law, the books of the prophets, of which they would have much of it memorized. They were expectantly awaiting the Messiah promised throughout the Old Testament, When Jesus comes, they demand signs and proof, which he gives them abundantly. Jesus teaches with authority of the Messiah and is empowered supernaturally. That is clear. They should, the Pharisees, for every reason, recognize him as the Messiah and worship him. Instead, they reject him. Their hatred for him grows and grows. We see that throughout these middle chapters of Matthew is their consistent hard-heartedness grows and grows and is displayed time and time again. And it is that hard-heartedness, that rejection that Jesus condemns him for later on in our passage this morning. And the first three verses here, 22 through 24, demonstrate to us the first reality of the kingdom. Some people even when the truth of the gospel in Christianity is clearly presented, it's right in front of them, will reject the gospel. You can overturn every argument. You can lay out every evidence. They can be faced with no other logical explanation that Jesus is in fact the Messiah and they will reject the king and his kingdom still. Understanding this reality of the kingdom is essential to evangelism. You We should not be surprised when people hear the gospel preached on Sunday mornings or some event that they don't respond, or when we share with them that they reject the king and his kingdom. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that the word of the cross is falling to those that are perishing. We know that it takes a supernatural working of the spirit to open someone's eyes to the truth of the gospel. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't share the gospel, or that we should not share with hope. We know, and we'll see later on in the text, we have great cause for hope. But this reality should make us pray and ask the Lord to open the eyes of those that we share with, that they would see Jesus for who he truly is. This truth should make us more dependent on God in evangelism. And recognizing this reality of the kingdom that some will reject the Messiah allows our evangelist efforts to be fueled by hope, clarity, and with realistic expectation. Despite this unbelief we see here in these first, three verses, this reality of the kingdom, we have great hope. And that hope we find in the next five verses. So look with me at verses 25 through 29. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by visible, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Reality two of the kingdom. The kingdom conquers all. Reality two of the kingdom. The kingdom conquers all. Though the Pharisees and religious leaders had accused Jesus of being demonic in previous encounters, this is the first time recorded in Matthew that Jesus responds to their accusation. And he refutes their accusation by undermining the logic of their statement, their accusation. He shows them that it's illogical. And that illogical statement and reasoning is fueled by their unbelief and hatred of him. He refutes the logic of their statement in two ways. Way number one a group divided against itself cannot stand. Jesus' question to them is clear. Why would Satan want to cast out his own agents? If Jesus were truly demonic, he would be accomplishing the will and work of Satan, not undermining Satan's authority and kingdom. A kingdom that is united can accomplish its goals, but a divided kingdom cannot hope to endure, let alone advance. There are two popular speeches in American history that illustrate this truth. Uh, don't worry, I won't read them all for you. Um, I did read them, they're, they're helpful. Um, the first is found in President Washington, George Washington's farewell address given in 1796. Encouraging the country to remain unified and dedicated to the union as Washington really steps down and, and just enters out of public life for the most part altogether. He said this, they, being the four sections of the country in a speech he divides, north, south, east, and west, must derive from union an exemption from those broils and wars between themselves which so frequently afflict neighboring countries not tied together by the same government washington warning against the dangers of a disunified kingdom the second more famous speech you may have heard of was delivered by aspiring us senator abraham lincoln in 1858 it's famously dubbed the house divided speech and you know he's given credit, but obviously he pulls directly from this passage. Um, I don't know, he didn't quote Jesus though. He didn't cite his sources, so maybe we could accuse him of plagiarism, I don't know. Um, I I didn't see his footnotes, but I read the speech, he didn't cite it. Uh, Speaking to the growing tension in the nation over slavery and division between North and South that was caused by this issue and other policies and Supreme Court decisions that had been enacted and ruled. Lincoln writes this, under the operation of that policy, That agitation has not only not ceased, but has constantly augmented. In my opinion, it will not cease until a crisis shall have been reached and passed. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided it will become all one thing or all the other. And three years later, the North and South were at war. What resulted from that war was the greatest loss of life due to warfare in American history. Some 625,000 Americans were killed. Brother turned against brother, friend against friend, family against family. These, both these quotes illustrate that a kingdom that is divided against itself cannot stand. Division results in the destruction of a kingdom Jesus refutes the Pharisees' accusation by demonstrating that Satan would not turn his own agents against one another. To do so would undermine his authority. It's illogical. From there, Jesus moves to the second refutation of the Pharisees' logic. The second refutation of the Pharisees' logic. If what the Pharisees say is true, then the source of their power must also be demonic It was not uncommon for Jews in that day to cast out demons. And we know historically both Jews and Gentiles cast out demons, either by exorcisms or through some sort of incantation or some sort of method. So it was was common practice, and Jesus is aware of this. And Jesus says this, if Jesus does in fact cast out demons by the power of Satan, then the Pharisees too must also cast out demons by the power of Satan. It's the classic if then statement. If this is true, then logically this must also be true. So Jesus traps him here. He says, okay, if this is true, then you've got to either admit that you are empowered and demonic yourselves or my power comes from somewhere else, namely the spirit of God. And that's what Jesus means when he says, therefore, they will be your judges. He's talking about they or your sons. He's talking about the Pharisees who work these exorcisms. And this is just how blinded by hatred the Pharisees are. They're so opposed to Jesus and they reject him even when there is no logical explanation for who he is other than the Messiah. And after he tears apart their argument, Jesus goes on the offensive. Look with me at verses 28 and 29. But if it's by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus claims to cast out demons, to work miracles by the power of God, not Satan. And if this is true, we know it is because in Matthew 3, the spirit descends upon him, then he must in fact be the Messiah. There's no other explanation. And Jesus's claim here is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 42, 1, which we read earlier. I'm going to read the first verse there again. Isaiah 42, 1, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Jesus leaves no alternative. His work and words prove that he is in fact the Messiah and that the kingdom of God has come. Furthermore, Jesus tells them that he has come to defeat Satan, destroy his kingdom, and establish the kingdom of God. Mostly, as you've seen in Matthew, Matthew, when he speaks of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, it's it's more of a a future reality, and already but not yet. But here, Jesus has in mind a present kingdom, And Jesus illustrates his present reality of the kingdom with a picture of binding a strong man. In order to rob someone, you have to incapacitate them. You have to subdue them. Think about it. A man or woman, he or she breaks into someone's house, a robber. What do they first do? They walk throughout the house making sure there's no one present. If someone's present, they incapacitate them. And then once they've incapacitated them, they are free to take what they wish Similarly, when an invading faction invades a city or a fortress or a country, what do they do? They take over the city or fortress, they invade, they come over the walls, they incapacitate those that would oppose them and then they establish their authority and they do whatever they want. The picture Jesus gives us is clear. He stormed the capital city of Satan. He's broken down the doors of his stronghold and he has subdued him. Satan is powerless to defend his kingdom because Jesus has bound him. The kingdom of God has come, and it's spreading and growing. Satan's rule and reign are in one sense at an end. His domain, his kingdom, is diminishing, and the kingdom of God has conquered, and its borders are expanding. Jesus' message to the Pharisees is clear. The kingdom is here, and the kingdom conquers all. Nothing can stand in its way. The Powers and opposition of Satan and his minions stand no chance. Friends, this is really good news. God's kingdom is here and it is advancing. Satan and his earthly forces are powerless to stop it. And we're a part of this kingdom and we get to take part in the work of expanding it. We can share the gospel with confidence that God's word will not return void And that souls will be saved. We have nothing to fear. Though some we see in the first reality kingdom will reject the kingdom, many others will repent and believe. In fact, some that show opposition at first will in fact come to saving faith. So we can share the gospel with confidence and assurance that God's plan for his kingdom will move forward. Nothing can stop it. We are called to be faithful stewards of this kingdom, working to advance God's rule and reign. These first two realities of the kingdom, they present us with a choice. It's clear. You can either reject Christ and his kingdom, or you can accept him. There's no neutrality. There are two options. And that brings us to the third reality of the kingdom. Reality three, there is no neutrality in the kingdom. Look with me at verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. The image here is one of shepherding, not farming. One commentator writes this, The imagery is apparently taken from tending flocks. Animals tend to scatter, and if any given person takes no part in gathering the scattered members, he, in effect, scatters them. By doing nothing, he casts his vote in favor of scattering Jesus' words to the Pharisees are clear. If they're not with him, they are against him and against the kingdom of God. The hardness of their hearts and their attribution of Jesus' power to, to Satan lead him to make the stunning declaration that he does in verses 32, 1 and 32. And his condemnation of the Pharisees is directly tied to their rejection and statement In verse 24, look with me then at verse 31 and 32. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. For the sake of clarity, before we move forward, I'm gonna give you the definition of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The definition of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the attribution of the work of the Spirit to Satan that results from a heart that has continually rejected the truth of the gospel. In other words, it's a hatred of Christ and his word that results in calling what is good, evil, evil. We know blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not just simple unbelief. Jesus points that out in verses 31a and 32a when he says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. And then again, a word spoken against the son of man will be forgiven. We know that there were people that denied Jesus, that even called for his crucifixion that later would repent and believe. Peter even denied Christ. And all of us in this room who are Christians, at one point before our conversion, we in some way denied Christ. This type of rejection that Jesus begins with has in mind is unbelief, this type of rejection. It is the same type of unbelief or rejection we see in the crowds. That's what that type of unbelief, rejection, blasphemy is but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is something different. D.A. Carson, or DAC, as I like to affectionately call him, puts it this way. The first sin is rejection of the truth of the gospel, but there may be repentance and forgiveness for that. Whereas the second sin is rejection of the same truth in full awareness of what exactly one is doing. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit thoughtfully, Willfully and self-consciously rejecting the work of the Spirit, even though there can be no other explanation of Jesus' exorcisms than that. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is the willful, conscious, wholehearted rejection of Jesus with the full knowledge of who He is. The Pharisees' hatred for Jesus is shocking. You know what? Full unadulterated hatred and denial looks like, look no further than their rejection of Jesus. They were aware aware of the law and the prophets. They had heard Jesus speak and teach. They had seen many signs and wonders. And each one of those things, his words, his miracles, were to point to the fact that he was divine, that he was the Son of God. And faced with no other explanation that he in fact is the Messiah, they willfully reject him and call him evil. This blasphemy has not so much to do with what is specifically said, but with the hatred and hardness of the Pharisees' hearts that results in this denial. That's why Jesus immediately, which you'll see next week in the next five verses, Jesus addresses the issues of the heart. This sin is a hardness of heart that hates the things of God so much that it calls them evil. It's a stunning display of unbelief. It's stunning. So the question we're all asking, that we're left to ask, who can commit this unpardonable sin? Some take the position, and I I don't think the text leads us here, but it's, it's a commonly held position. Some take the position that the ability to commit this blasphemy of the spirit ceased when the apostles died and the miraculous gifts ended. Well, this is understandable, particularly depending on your theological framework on certain issues. Uh, It's also kind of convenient, if I'm honest, it would be great um, if that was it. But there's nothing in the text here or in any other one that would suggest that this kind of blasphemy, this rejection is tied specifically to the cessation of the miraculous gifts and signs. So it can still be committed, but it's not simple unbelief. So it has to be something else. We don't have time to jump there, but there's very strong parallels and connections between the blasphemy of the spirit and the warning passages in Hebrew that mention apostasy. There's a significant parallel. So can the unpardonable sin be committed today? Yes, but it can only be committed by an unbeliever and it is committed without remorse or hesitation. The unpardonable sin can be committed today but it can only be committed by an unbeliever. So if you've ever wondered that if, have I committed this unpardonable sin? Or if you've encountered someone who is, who's worried, who's anxious, I think I've committed the sin, I'm beyond saving. The recognition of the gravity of this issue and the concern that it has been committed is evidence that you have in fact, probably not committed it. This blasphemy is committed without remorse and without recognition. So, if you find yourself wondering, anxious over, have I committed this sin? Or you're counseling, talking with someone that has? Just tell them, repent. Believe the gospel. Obey Christ. Trust in his finished work on the cross. If you have a desire to do those things, if you believe those things, then it's a good indication that you have not even come close to m- committing this sin the next question we might ask is, well, how can we know if someone's committed this sin? Some people can commit it. Jesus we can never fully know. Certainly, there are warning signs and clear acts of rejection of Christ and his word that point to this level of unbelief. But we should never, right? we should never accuse someone of committing this unpardonable sin. We can, and we should warn them, right? When we... See hard-hearted unbelief, we should warn them that if they don't repent, if they reject Christ, that they will ultimately not be forgiven and plead with them to repent. But we should never accuse someone of committing this unpardonable sin. A few quick takeaways from our text this morning. Takeaway number one, you can have all of Jesus or you can have none of him. At our core, particularly in our culture, we're all pragmatists. We like to do what works, particularly when it has immediate results. When it comes to religion in the West, things are no different. Eclecticism is on the rise. You hear deconstruction where you're deconstructing the Christian faith, spitting out the bones, taking what you want. Eclecticism is on the rise. There is a fascination with new things but also with picking and choosing different aspects of a variety of religions, combining them together and forming some sort of spirituality that works best for you. Jesus's words are clear. You can have all of him or you can have none of him. You cannot have his love without his wrath. You cannot have his peace without his justice, his forgiveness without his holiness, his gentleness without his righteous anger. Christianity is a package deal, but it comes at a great price. It's absolutely free. All you have to do is repent and believe. So maybe you're a student, junior high, high school, college, maybe not, maybe older. You're experimenting with Christianity and these other things, other aspects of so-called religions, combining them, what works for me, what makes me feel good, Jesus' words are clear to you. You can reject him or you can have him. There is no other option. Maybe you're here, you've been attending for weeks, months, um, and you're on the fence about this whole Christianity thing. You're like, "Well, yeah, there's some things I like about this. Other things Jesus say, I'm like, woof. I don't know if that's for me. But friend, you're not on the fence. You're a part of the opposition. And if that's you, repent and believe the gospel that God is holy, that you are a sinner, and that Christ died in your place so that you might be forgiven. Why wait when the truth of the gospel is so clear in our text? There's, there's two options. There's two ways to live. Repent and believe. Takeaway number two. Fall on your face and repent of your sin to the Lord. Takeaway number two, fall on your face and repent of your sin to the Lord. I trust most of us in this room are Christians, so you are not in danger of committing this unpardonable sin, but the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees and their rejection of Jesus should shock you. Should make the hair on your arms and the back of your neck stand on end. Their blasphemy is a result of a consistently hardened heart to their sin and to the reality of Jesus's. And you too, believer, we can harden our hearts to sin in such a way, though it doesn't maybe result in our denial of Christ, but it will cause us to commit sins we never thought were possible. Consistently hardening your heart causes you to become callous to God's word and the Spirit's prompting to repentance. Not to mention, it just makes you absolutely miserable. Neil Shenvey says this about rejecting truth. I'm told he's a great Twitter follower. I'm not on Twitter. Um, he's a riot, apparently. He's also written some great articles. Denying the truth is not only wicked, it's hard-hardening. Each time you do it, you make yourself a little more irrational. You become less and less able, not only to admit the truth, but to even recognize it. The same is with hardening our hearts to our sin. Believer, you're not immune to this danger. The warning passages in Scripture are there to remind us of the danger of becoming complacent with our sin. So search your heart, ask the Lord to reveal your sin to you, confess, repent, and drink deeply of the waters of grace and mercy found in Christ. A final takeaway from the text this morning. There is always hope for repentance. Takeaway three, there is always hope for repentance. Listen to these words. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Those are the words of Paul of Tarsus, who hated Christ and his church so much that he dedicated his life to its destruction, who presided over the first martyr's death, who imprisoned and enchained Christians with joyful glee. They're also the words of the man who wrote a majority of the letters found in the New Testament, who planted and strengthened many of the first churches and who counted it all joy to be beaten, imprisoned, starved, rejected, and ultimately killed for the sake of Christ. Francis always hoped for repentance, even for those who seemed to be far beyond its reach. No heart is too hard, no person too lost, no past too sinful to be saved by the love of God found in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in that for yourself, believer. It is true for you and true for me that God saved us, the chief of sinners. And share the gospel with confidence that God can even soften the hardest of hearts. No thing can stand in the way of his kingdom. Friends, the kingdom has come. It's here, though some will reject it. We have great hope, assurance, confidence that no thing can stand against the kingdom of God. So live with hope. Guard your heart. Be watchful. Repent of your sin. Make sure the gospel with hope that God can save even the most hard of hearts. Let's pray. Father, this this text is difficult as we see rejection and unbelief and we wrestle with some true realities of the world in which we live. We thank you for the confidence that we have in your word that is true, that is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting. God, help us to live with optimistic hope as your kingdom is here and has come and that your son is returning to consummate his kingdom, where there will be no more suffering and difficulty, no more rejection, no more sin. Lord, as we wait for that day with expectation, help us to wait with joy, to share with hope, we pray for those in this room that don't know you, for our friends and family members that seem so hard, coworkers whose hearts are so hard that you would soften them that you would help us to share with confidence that you can work in them. God, help us to be watchful of our hearts, of our lives. Give us eyes to see our sin, to be quick to confess, to seek reconciliation, to repent. We thank you for Christ. It is his, his great, wonderful name we pray, amen.